You're listening to a Richwood Church podcast. And our community of faith does a lot of things together. We rightly come together on Sunday mornings, and we have a pattern for these gatherings. We don't just show up and have coffee, although that doesn't sound bad either. And by the way, coffee is coming, right? So for those of you who are still a little bit like jittery, there's no coffee, it's coming. But we sing together, we pray, we preach, we baptize, we do communion together. And all of those things are the right thing to do. But they'll mean nothing if it's not all undergirded with love. Because God is only pleased when we love each other well. And sometimes church, church people argue about things. They argue about what is the right music? What is the right clothing? What's right theology? And sometimes we take pride in being right when we're talking about non-believers or the behavior of others. And it's very easy to forget the most important thing, which is to be right with each other. Because we won't reach anyone with the gospel if our relationships aren't in order. And so this morning, Jesus will remind us about the importance, the necessity, the urgency of being right with one another. And so if you brought a Bible with you this morning, if you have a phone or a tablet, please open with me to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. And if you didn't bring one of those with you, you can follow along on the screen. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. Now, our series is called Making Jesus Known by Living Like Him. And we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever given. The words are are amazing. And in this section, Jesus dispels any notion that we can just live with sour relationships and be authentic and effective disciples. Especially now, there is so much division. And not only nationwide, but even in our homes, there's division about the virus and masks and no masks and all of this. And it's so desperately important that we have our relationships in order. Now, Jesus had just finished the section in 17 through 20, where he rightly claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And he talked about righteousness that comes through humility. And humility is a very, very big part of living in his kingdom. But now he'll deal with the difficult subject of anger. And Jesus stresses in his kingdom, relationships are more important than rules. Relationships are more important than rules. And so it's essential to be right with one another. Let's pick it up now in verse 21. Chapter 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, when Jesus says that, he's referring to the, the Pharisees, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, now he's setting the record straight, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest, you, uh, your, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So we're going to go through this and we're going to understand what he means. But he's teaching regarding the urgency of being right with one another. And the first thing he's doing here is he's dispelling a lie that had been passed around from rabbis through the Pharisees. And it's about the Old Testament command against murder. And so what Jesus is going to say first here is unlike the Pharisees, Jesus contended that malice begins in the heart and is open to judgment as well. And what the Pharisees were lying about is that it was only the outward act that could be judged. And Jesus is saying, no, no. The inward thinking, the thought processes that lead up to the act can also be judged. It's about the internal attitude behind the act. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, it's all about the heart. The Pharisees only cared about what was outside. They were all about what their actions did. But Jesus will make it clear that what's in here is every bit as important as the outward action. And that's uncomfortable because this is a place that no one else can see but God. And this is difficult to sometimes grapple with, but it's essential that we grapple with it in order to be right with one another. And the real issue that Jesus is dealing with here is the issue of improper anger. Because improper anger ruins relationships, and it hinders spiritual growth. And when I say improper anger, here's what I'm getting to. Not all anger is sin. Jesus was angry at times, but never sinned. And of course, the most obvious example is when he went into the temple, he found the dishonest money changers. They were ripping people off. They were selling sacrifices, sacrificial animals at, at, at ridiculous cost. And he tossed tables and he threw them out. And he wasn't happy at all. He was angry, but he did not sin. And so anger is not always sinful. And there is a place for a believer to be angry at sin or injustice. But the problem that Jesus is addressing is the problem of a personal offense that you hold over someone else. That's the kind of anger he's referring to. It's relational anger, and it leads to sin. Now, sometimes the presenting problem can legitimately make you angry. For example, somebody might criticize how you raise your children, and they have no relational right to do that. That makes you angry. Or they may criticize your appearance to make you angry or mock your political beliefs, which can make you angry. And so that's only natural, but it's, it's when we make it personal and we begin to attack someone or their character, even in the heart, even our inside voice, then we're setting ourselves up for judgment. And this is the kind of anger that lies at the heart of murder. 
The act itself of murder is horrific. It's terrible. But the thought process is also sinful. And we can't hide from God. I find it amazing. I find myself when I'm praying and, and, and going through the different, the different sections of Scripture that I read in the mornings that I, I have a hard time even expressing my sin to God as if he doesn't know about it already. We can't hide from God. But, but here's the thing. If we harbor anger and malice toward another, then we are guilty. And that's why Jesus said, you need to be right with one another. That's why it's so urgently important because anger that simmers inside because we're offended, we will be judged for. And it's most likely a sinful kind of anger. And this anger then results in a hardened heart. So here's the second point is that there are other consequences that come along with this. The Lord is referring to improper relational anger. And I missed that point. So go to the next one because that's my fault. Improper relational anger incurs judgment. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And that's what made this so revolutionary. That's what separated his kingdom from the kingdom that was being offered by the Pharisees. In verse 22, the second half, he makes this very clear. Look at it again. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so this relational anger brings with it severe consequences. Improper anger is not okay with Jesus. But here's what the rest of this verse deals with. It deals with the pride that anger produces. Because whenever we stay angry at someone, then there's pride involved. Because we are holding a position over someone. I'm right. You're not right. I have a right to carry this with me. And so Jesus is dealing with the pride that comes with that. And he does it in the form of name calling. And in the Hebrew, you fool is a derogatory term that means empty headed. It's, it's the way that we fight back. It's the way that we sting back at someone. And the council here is the Sanhedrin who had the power to put one in jail. And so Jesus said, don't go there. There will be judgment for this. And the idea of the hell of fire, well, that would have stung a lot too to these listeners on the hillside in Galilee because they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. When Jesus would teach around Jerusalem, there was this perfect visual metaphor for him. In the Hinnom Valley, just south of Jerusalem, there was a, a continuous burning garbage dump. And so when Jesus was teaching there, all you had to do is turn around and point and say, that's what hell is like. Those, those flames, the, the bitterness of it, that's what hell is like. And if your heart is hardened by anger, you will not repent. You will not give yourselves to God. You'll spend eternity in hell. Now, this doesn't mean, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that as a Christian, one day you're going to wake up and find yourself in hell. Because that would be contrary to other scripture. The Bible's very clear. When you put your faith in Christ... When you believe that he has come and he has given himself as the son of God, 
on the cross as payment for our sin and made atonement for that sin, and you trust his work on the cross, then the Bible says that you are saved. You are right with God. Ephesians is very clear. The Holy Spirit comes as a seal of our salvation. So I don't want you to think that you can somehow throw that away, but what Jesus is saying is that if you're an angry person, if your heart is hardened, then you're not going to come to know him in the first place. And if you are a believer, then anger destroys a community. It destroys the unity of a church, and it will ultimately destroy you. It kills your spiritual life. So this is a really important topic. And there's a lot to be angry about right now, everywhere you look. I don't know if if you're like me. Every time I look sideways, there's someone making a decision I don't like, or, or there's someone with an opinion that I disagree with, and I just have to just like pray, pray, pray for a clean heart. That's because all of this judgment has consequences, and it's important that we deal with it. Because if we don't, we will not be effective disciples, and it's urgent that we do so. So Jesus continues now in verses 23 through 26 to deal with the urgency of this, of getting it right with one another. Here's what he says in 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, which would have been commonplace in that time, and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop there for a moment. Look, this applies to if someone has something against you, not just you against them. Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Come to term quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard you put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So we can see here that this is a devastating thing to hold on to anger. And that's the next point I want to make. Jesus wants you to deal with this. God desires that you deal quickly with your anger, which is opposite of our human nature. It's much easier to pretend it's going to go away. It's much easier to go to your friend. Say, I got a problem with this person. It's hard to go to people straight on. But this is very clear. The religious activity of offering a gift at the altar, and in our day you could say the religious activity of coming to church and and worshiping and all those kinds of things, not as important to Jesus as being right with another believer. Jesus said, make it right, then come back. And so his value system in his kingdom is different than what they were used to. He valued relationships both horizontally and vertically, more than all of this religious activity that the Pharisees did. And of course, Jesus is teaching contextually. So here's the way their justice system worked. I mentioned the Sanhedrin, a court of about 70 members. They could send you to prison. They could leave you penniless. And so what Jesus is saying here, and this is a total paraphrase, don't get all the way to court. Because if you do, you're going to be judged. And if you're judged, you're going to go broke. They'll take every last penny that you have. How foolish that is. Get it settled before you get that far down the road. Deal with your anger. Deal with it quickly. Because you don't want to end up like that. 
and, and you can take care of your anger before you're spiritually bankrupt. Before relationships are fractured, before there's a split in the church, before anger steals your joy or alienates your spouse and your children, deal with your anger. It's much better to be right with another than it is to be right. I have a feeling that when I see Jesus one day, his first question is not going to be, hey, Paul, how many times were you right? Because that's not going to be a very long list. I think he's going to be a lot more concerned about relationships because these are the people I'm going to be spending eternity with. And so this is what makes this so important. The Pharisees had twisted the message. They were all about the outside. They, they said that it's the act of murder that, needs, that, that is judged. But Jesus came along and said, no, wait a minute, no. Now I'm going to expand that. It's the thought processes that led to the act that are also open for judgment. And so that's inside. That's our inside voice. And Jesus is saying, you've got to get that on the table as well. It's more important than religious duty. And there's an urgency to it because Jesus loves his children and he wants us to love his children the way he does. And we can't make Jesus known if we're not living by him. So at the end of the day, we want to keep our relationships in order. So here are a few takeaways for you. First, understand what's going on in the heart because that's what's important to Jesus. It begins here. The seed of dissension, the seed of malice, the, the, the seed of holding grudges begins right here in the heart. It's not just plunging the knife into someone that is the judgeable offense. It's all of the thoughts that led to that horrific act. And, and if, if we could have all just been in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount and heard Jesus preach this, he was a brilliant preacher. He would make these points and then he would just let the weight of it fall on the people there because he had such authority. And so maybe God is confronting you right now. Maybe the weight of this is landing on you. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, wow, yeah, there are some people I need to get right with. I know as I walked around and prayed today, I asked God to reveal names to me, and there were more than I would have liked on that list. Or maybe you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm kind of removed from this, to be honest with you, Paul. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see myself like a murderer. I'm, I'm not a criminal. I'm not immoral. Well, D.A. Carson is a really well-respected theologian, and this is a great quote because I think this will dispel that notion. Have you not hated? Have you never wished someone were dead? Have you not frequently stooped to the use of contempt, even to character assassination? All such vilifying anger lies at the root of murder and makes a thoughtful man conscious that he differs not a whit, morally speaking, from the actual murderer. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. If you've thought these things in a moment, then you have... You're no different than the murderer 
himself. And so this is so important because it's penetrating truth. It leads to humility because when you understand this, when you understand the concept of this, that the heart is as important as the outward act, then you cannot hold position over another person because we're all in the same boat. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And so your heart needs to be aligned with God in order to be right with another. And here's the second point. This principle applies to those who have hurt you as well. Not just those that you have hurt. And what I want to do just for a moment is share a chapter of my life with you. The Reader's Digest version. Because I think it will help you understand how this passage comes to life. And how God applied it in my life. And I hate to talk about my son Taylor's death because... It's just hard to talk about. I never know when I'm talking about it too much, but I think it'll help you see that Carson is right. That a thoughtful man differs not a whit, morally speaking, from the actual murderer. And so about seven and a half years ago, while we were pastoring in Canada, our son Taylor was murdered during a robbery. And, and many of you know this story. But that was a really difficult jolt, obviously. And the investigation went on for eight months. We didn't know. We didn't know how he'd been killed. We didn't know who killed him. We didn't know any of the details except for where. And so we just waited and waited. It was a very difficult eight months. But one day, finally, the detectives came to our home and the detectives were wonderful and they they led us through this process. They're almost like shepherds. My, my twins, who were, who were younger then, called them the men with the shiny shoes. And they would come, and they would sit around our kitchen table. My wife, Wendy, who is, the, who is an amazing prayer warrior, would pray for these guys. And they would just kind of like blush. You know, I don't know if they had a lot of people praying for them. But this day they came over and they said, we're going to start making arrests. And it was a relief, but it was also terrifying. And they said... What we, might, what we might want you to do is talk to the people that did this if they're not talking to us and plead with them as the family to confess. And so we, we, we cut a video to that regard. It was a video to whoever, and we just said, would you please, please be honest about this? This was our son. And then they said, well, you might have to come there, but that never happens. Well, on the Wednesday of that week, I got a call, and they had the driver in custody, and so Wendy started praying like crazy. I drove down to the, to the police headquarters, and I talked to the driver, and he stonewalled. The detective and I didn't give us anything. I left, and then I found myself back there again. It was 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and I knew that they had the shooter in custody. And they asked me to come again because they weren't getting anything from him. He wasn't talking. And so I remember Wendy's at home praying again. I'm, I'm driving on fuel and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Mountain Dew and, and the Holy Spirit, you know, and I'm driving there and I didn't know what I was getting into, but I remember walking in and a number of detectives met me and there was this whole room full of the team that had been doing this investigation and we waited, we waited for about an hour and a half. We just talked. And finally, one of the detectives came down and said, Mr. Johnson, he said, he, his name is Jesse Hill, and he is confessing now. He is talking now. So you're not going to have to go up there. But here's what he said. 
he does want you to come because he wants to say he's sorry. The reason I'm telling you this is because this was exactly the passage that God brought to my mind at that moment. It was this. And the Holy Spirit was at work, and I knew that I had murdered in my heart. I knew that I had maligned people. I knew that I had been unduly angry toward others, but that I had been forgiven. So how could I withhold forgiveness from this man? Because I had been forgiven for the same stuff. It was just inside for me. And, and I had Jesus, and he, he didn't. And so it wasn't really that hard a decision. Because God just brought this to my mind. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go up there. And so I walked up with the detective. We go in this room. It's just like you see on TV. It's not very big. It's me. About eight feet away is Jesse Hill. And the detective is standing against the wall. And this, this, this man has got his orange jumpsuit on. He's, he's got tears running down his face. He said, I'm so sorry. He said, I never met anyone to get hurt. And I remember just looking at him and saying, Jesse, I said, we'll work on forgiving you. And I said, when this is all done, you know I'm a pastor, right? And he goes, yeah, I, I know. I said, well, I'd love to come back and tell you more about how God can change your life and what God has in store for you. Would you like that? And he said, yes, I would. And then something amazing happened, and this is the Holy Spirit for sure. He got up from his chair, he walked over. We met in the middle of the room, and he gave me this huge bear hug. And so here we are embracing. And that's the power of Forgiveness. And there's no doubt in my mind that only happened because the Holy Spirit stepped in. And if you've been through a crisis, if you've been through a jolt like this, you know that it's the Holy Spirit doing all the thinking for you. And so there we stood, and I realized that God was at work. And Wendy and I had made a promise to ourselves, we're going to bring Jesus wherever we could. And I remember at the sentencing hearing, that was a year and a half later, these things take a long time. And Wendy again stood up in the courtroom and reiterated our forgiveness for him and told him that we want you to change your life, that God can change your life. And so we've sent him letters right before we moved back here four and a half years ago. We had a chance to spend a whole day with him, try to give him the gospel every which way we could. And we sent him letters. And I don't know if, what God is doing in his life. But the reason I wanted to tell you that is I want you to know that forgiveness is possible and forgiveness has a powerful effect on people's lives. Wendy and I have a chance, well, every now and then we get asked to speak in a prison. We speak to perpetrators who, don't, who haven't been forgiven by those that they victimized. And so we walk them through that process and how that might be possible. And every one of them expresses this desire to, to make it right. But here's the thing. We... We can make it right. And when we offer forgiveness, it changes lives. I had a chance because of the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in there and offer this kid something he probably had never had before. Unforgive, I mean, forgiveness, unconditional love. And I gave him hope, I think. And so I realized at that moment that because I had been forgiven, how could I possibly justify withholding forgiveness for another person. When it comes to being right with another, it's the heart that's the issue. It's how we view others. And what I want you to do is just examine your heart. Are you right with others? 
And I know that in many relationships and in, in many churches, and our church has been here since the Civil War, something like that. It's a lot of water that's under the bridge in a lot of relationships. And you've been hurt. You've hurt people. So the question is, what, what, do, we, what do we do with that? And, and what Jesus is saying is, go make it right. Now, sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you have to be careful. You have to be wise. You, the Bible says if, if you're a leader, you want to bring people with you. But here's the thing. If it is possible, Jesus isn't asking us. And so what, what I want to do as a church is I want to be a church that has clean relationships so we can move forward together because I've been around enough churches to know that the thing that will destroy the ministry of a church very rarely is, you know, the big things. Like we, we, Very rarely is it immorality. You know, very rarely is it somebody stealing money from the church or something. The vast majority of times, it's relationships that blow up and the church splits. And we don't want that to happen here because Ridgewood has a bright future. And so it's up to all of us to be right with one another. And why don't you stand? Because I'd like to pray over you and I'd like you just to be thinking as I'm praying over you, who, who is it in your life? God, God was good enough to give me some names and I'm, I'm going to go to the Lord and I'm going to pray through that. And I want you to do the same as I pray for you, if you would. God, I just thank you for this beautiful flock that you've brought together at Ridgewood Church. I know you have plans, not only for our church, but for each person that's represented here and each family that's represented here. And God, I also know that Satan circles around and he wants to steal and he wants to kill and he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy relationships he wants to put a wedge between believers. So God, give us the, the wisdom and the know-how, the courage to make our relationships right. Help us to go to the people that we think might even have something against us, even though we're not sure. Help us to go to the people that we know have hurt us and have a hard conversation and help us to keep short accounts. Because we want to honor you. And this is important to you. That makes it important to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.